Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we visualise weird and wonderful science to replicate in your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Professor Antoine Oyen builds a microscope to watch DNA replicate. Antoine Van Oyen is a professor at the University of Wollongong and the director of a brand new molecular life sciences research institute called Molecular Horizons. I spoke with Antoine by Zoom and began by asking him, have you developed a new type of microscope that lets you watch DNA replicate? Yes, we have. We, we developed and we built our own microscope to visualize, almost like a molecular movie, how DNA is being copied um, at the level of individual DNA molecules and individual protein molecules to learn much more about how this incredibly important process happens inside cells. It's amazing. I've seen the animations that were all we used to have to understand what was happening with DNA, with all the loops and all the things moving around, but you can actually watch it happening. Yeah, yeah, we can. So the copying of DNA is an incredibly important process that's important not just for us humans, but for every living organism on the planet, bacteria, plants, viruses, what have you, they, they all have DNA that essentially is the blueprint of you know, what, what they are as an organism. And, and before a cell divides, you need to completely duplicate that bit of DNA. So you have one copy in one daughter cell and, and one copy in, in the other. And that process has been really well studied for I would say more than half a century. And we know a lot of things, but we also know, we don't know a lot of things as well. And in particular, we really don't understand how all these protein molecules that form a complicated complex that together unzips the double helix and makes two new double helices out of it, how that really works together, the orchestration and the gymnastics almost of all these protein enzymes. So we develop microscopes that visualize the process in, in real time as I said, as a, as a molecular movie. And it turns out that these protein complexes responsible for DNA replication, they actually work quite differently than what we thought they, uh, they worked. Ah, so, so things didn't quite come the way that you'd been led to believe. No, so, so, so listeners might have had in high school or maybe uni days, the textbook explanation of how DNA is being copied. And the textbook explanation is often about a, a complex of protein molecules that sit really neatly together as a complex, as a machine that then runs over the DNA and copies hundreds of thousands of DNA letters in the alphabet, bases, nucleotides, without falling apart. And it turns out that that process isn't really the way we thought it goes. The complex is there, but it turns out from our experiments, that the different bits of protein components that are necessary for the process, they continuously come in and out very dynamically into the replication copying complex. 
And the best comparison I have is watching a Formula One car zip around the racing track while its tires are being swapped out. So not the classical picture of a car that's one piece and goes around the track in one piece. No, what we've seen in that replication DNA copying complex is that individual components are being exchanged on the fly while the copying process happens. And that's an insight that we didn't have before we started using our microscopes to look at the process in real time at the level of single molecules. And I guess there's a lot of the understanding of the way DNA replicates that they were never sure of, but you can now verify it by watching. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a famous saying that says, seeing is believing. And I'm a great fan of, of the philosophy. So we decided to just build the microscopes and just watch what's happening. All the, the knowledge we, uh, we have of the DNA copying process so far has been obtained by what we call ensemble averaging experiments, classical biochemistry experiments that are often done or always, always done in, in test tubes in a way that contain a gazillion copies of the molecules involved, with gazillion being a technical term. And uh, biochemists looking at the outcome of such a reaction, but while doing so, averaging the result over those gazillion reactions that take place simultaneously in the reaction tube. And you can imagine that if you look at a dynamic process and you average it out over, over thousands and thousands of individual uh, constituents, you will learn a lot, but you'll also miss a lot of the important information. And that's the reason why we decided to develop these microscopes to look at individual reactions, individual molecules. And the best comparison here is a marathon that you know, is being held in a city and the, the helicopter camera view from above shows you this pack of runners, thousands of them sort of snaking their way through the city, uh, crossing bridges and what have you. That's a good example of a, an ensemble population averaging experiment. You might be able to pinpoint with high accuracy how fast the pack is going, but you won't be able to see what individual runners are doing. And that's what we're trying to do with these microscopes, looking at these individual reactions and seeing whether they take a break sometimes, whether they very briefly, fleetingly do something different than the, the rest of the pack. And that's what gives us the important molecular information on the process. And there's so much going on there. So you're able to watch the DNA are you able to see things like mutations happen? How often does that happen? Yeah, so, so we are developing techniques that allows us to show what happens when this copying process hits damage in the DNA that could lead to mutations. Those replication proteins, those enzymes, are extremely efficient in certain types of cells. They copy DNA at a rate and a velocity of a 1,000 DNA letters per second and making only one mistake per roughly 1 billion, 100 billion letters. So if you think of that as a process where you have to copy a book by typing very quickly, reading a page of Harry Potter, for example, and quickly typing out 
that same page to copy the whole set of, of I believe it's seven books in the Harry Potter series that would correspond to making, uh, I think only one mistake for every 100 times you copy the entire volume of Harry Potter books. And it's quite an amazing feat. So DNA replication isn't just interesting to see how life replicates and, and what happens in humans, but it's a big thing in bacteria and viruses. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we live for 80, 90 years. Bacteria, on the other hand, have a division life cycle of as short as 20 minutes, meaning that you would have one E. coli bacterium. For example, E. coli is a type of bacterium that researchers love to look at because it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful model system. Um, and E. coli bacterium divides every 20 minutes. And then every 20 minutes, its entire DNA needs to be copied and divided over the two daughter cells. And the high speed with which bacteria divide also gives them an opportunity to evolve really quickly. Because as, as most of your listeners might realize or remember, uh, is that evolution is all based on adapting to the environment by gradually introducing mutations into the DNA and the favorable mutations being carried over from generation to generation. So obviously evolution speeds up as the division rate of the organism gets faster and faster. So bacteria are super smart, if you wish, in evolving very quickly. And this is interesting, not from a purely academic curiosity point of view, but it's really super relevant where it comes to bacteria evolving resistance against antibiotics. Because when we go to the doctor, when we have a bacterial infection, the, the GP might prescribe antibiotics. And, and the very fast evolutionary processes in bacteria have now caused a lot of these bacterial infections to be not sensitive anymore to antibiotic drugs. So the work we do does tie the, the basic molecular mechanism side of things into an actually really important health challenge that we're facing right now, that of antibiotic or antimicrobial resistance. So my understanding is that traditionally, antibiotics were used to filter out those mutations that weren't resistant to the antibiotics. So either you've got new mutations or even indeed those people doing genetic engineering are able to put tags so that they filter the ones that they've engineered and not the ones that, that didn't change. But you found that antibiotics don't just filter out the mutations that would just randomly arise that happen to survive the antibiotic, but there's something more sinister happening. Yeah, absolutely. So researchers have come to realize over the last decade or so that the application of antibiotics doesn't just act to kill all the bacteria that are sensitive. The classical view of evolution that we all have in our heads, that survival of the fittest, you apply pressure from the outside, for example, antibiotics, and those that don't have the particular mutations to protect against the antibiotics, those will die out. And then only those that had the mutations to make them resistant to the antibiotics survive. It turns out, as you say, there's something going on that's a bit more sinister. 
It turns out that if you apply antibiotics to a population of bacteria that are all sensitive, so you expect that all of them will die. And from a clinical perspective, that means you'll cure the patient of their bacterial infection. It turns out that the act of applying the antibiotic itself might generate those mutations that will make these bacteria resistant to the antibiotics. So we call this induced mutagenesis. And that places us as a society in a bit of a conundrum, namely that antibiotics are important to cure bacterial infections, but the more you use them as a society, the higher the risk is that you generate bacteria that are resistant to those antibiotics. So just to be clear, we're not talking about the, the old idea that the mutations just randomly occur and some of them just happen to benefit the bacteria. The antibiotics actually trigger the bacteria to mutate more quickly so that it can find something, hopefully, that will let it survive the antibiotics. Absolutely. That's exactly what happens. When you apply the antibiotic, what happens at the, at the molecular level, and this goes back to the DNA copying mechanisms we're interested in, when you apply an antibiotic, you'll essentially damage the DNA and uh, the enzymes that are involved in copying the DNA, they'll run into roadblocks on the DNA and that will cause all kinds of DNA repair mechanisms to take place. So essentially what happens if you apply the antibiotics, you massively increase the amount of damage in the DNA. And the classical view is because that kills the bacteria, right? That's what you set out to do with the antibiotic. But it turns out what happens is that the bacteria then increase their levels of DNA repair to deal with that new situation. And those repair mechanisms, they cause a lot of mutations. And that, as you just pointed out, might then speed up evolution and allows the bacterium to find an evolutionary way out of the problem. So apply more antibiotics and the higher the chance you'll find resistance. So that's the catch-22 that we're in right now. And is this happening because, after all, most of our antibiotics come from bacteria, and so bacteria have evolved with antibiotics in their environment for millions of years, and so they've got this mechanism of sensing that it's there? Well, partly yes, partly no. A lot of the antibiotics we have are indeed derived from natural antibiotics. Having said that, if you give a bacterial population a drug that is completely artificial, has no relationship to anything that you might find in nature, it will still do the same thing. It will still massively increase its level of mutations to deal with the, the challenge at hand and still might end up with a mutation that will make it insensitive to, to the antibiotics. So, so there's clearly a need for us as a society to keep developing new antibiotics, but also to not just rely on the development of antibiotics because that's, as the Americans say, kicking the can down the road, because bacteria will always, in the end, find a solution to the, to the new antibiotic, meaning they'll evolve resistance. So we really need to be creative about not just developing new antibiotics, but also developing medicines and drugs that will directly target those repair pathways so that you don't give bacteria the chance to develop those resistances. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. 
send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And to ask you a little bit about the microscope, is it based on using light? Yes, so we do a couple of different things. We do use light microscopes, the same type of microscopes that people might remember from their high school biology, but a massively more complex, souped-up version of those. What we also do is we use electron microscopes. So those are microscopes that don't use light anymore, but they use electrons. And the cool thing about electrons is that they also have a wave nature like light particles, but the wavelength of electrons as a wave is so much smaller than the wavelength of light, meaning that we can see things that are much smaller than what we can see with an optical light microscope. So we have down here in Wollongong now a number of very high quality electron microscopes that are quite impressive to just look at. These microscopes are four meters tall, and they need to sit in essentially a specially designed building. And these microscopes are able to peer down to levels of details that are roughly equivalent to a millionth of the diameter of a human hair. So take a human hair. I don't have a lot of them anymore, but take a human hair and take the diameter, which is roughly 100 micrometers, divided by, uh, by a million and you end up with the, the level of detail that you can see using these electron microscopes. Amazing. You've looked at the rate of DNA replication as well. Did you calculate how long the DNA gets over our lifetimes? Yeah, so there's a, there's a fascinating uh, little back-of-the-envelope calculation that, that you can do, and I invite your listeners to actually do this. And, and the question that you can ask yourself is how much DNA the total length of DNA we replicate over our lifetime in our own body. And when you do that, there's only a couple of numbers you need. You need to know how many cells you have in your body. And that's roughly 10 to the power of 15, I believe, and one with 15 zeros. And you need to know how often these cells divide. And it's, a, it's an average. Uh, neuronal cells, they stop dividing after your 2025 the lining of your stomach, for example, keeps dividing very rapidly, but the average is 50 times per cell. You also need to know that every cell has two meters of DNA, which is quite impressive. A cell is only typically 0.1, of, 0.1 millimeter across, and inside that little cell, you have two meters of DNA. So you, you multiply all those numbers to calculate how much DNA you copy over your lifetime, and you end up with a length that is pretty much the same as a light year. So you copy a light year worth of DNA, which is a quite amazing feat. And I always tell my kids, I have teenage kids, and they often sit around being bored and doing nothing. And I tell them about this, and then they've actually started to use it against me because I tell them, hey, do something, you're just being bored. And they say, no, I'm working hard on my light year of DNA. <laughs> But you don't want to waste your light year of DNA. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> For these new types of microscopes that you've been building, do you have to house them differently to other microscopes? 
Yes. So the electron microscopes I just mentioned, so those are microscopes we're not building. Those are microscopes that are actually being made by only one company in the world that can make them, those four meter tall electron microscopes. They are so sensitive, they require very bespoke housing environment, if you wish. So here at the University of Wollongong, we just built a new building, essentially purpose-built for these microscopes, where we need to shield them from two major influences. One is vibrations, and the other is electromagnetic interference. And I just want to highlight a couple of aspects related to both. So vibrations, these microscopes are so sensitive that if you were to put them in our building without any special isolation, they would actually pick up the vibrations of the waves crashing on the beach five kilometers away, and that would completely disrupt the measurements. So they sit on a massive slab of concrete that's a meter thick, that's piled into the rocks sitting 70 meters below the, the surface into bedrock. And those slabs of concrete are actually physically not touching the rest of the building. They're almost floating on these big concrete slabs so that the movements that the building makes when you have a bit of wind, you can't really see it, but buildings are moving around to make sure that those movements are not coupled through to the, to the microscopes. Um, another really cool thing is that the electromagnetic interference is such a problem that when you build a building, you use concrete and you use reinforced concrete, right? Concrete has steel in it, rebar, to maintain the structural rigidity of the concrete. If we were to have done that, we wouldn't be able to use the microscopes because there's always a bit of residual current going through these steel components in the concrete. So we actually had to build our building out of glass fiber reinforced concrete. It's a special building technology. And I think we have the largest structure on the face of the planet built from glass fiber reinforced concrete. So it's quite a special building that we built here in Wollongong to house these very sensitive microscopes. And are you able to produce any video of the things that you're observing with these microscopes? Yeah, so these electron microscopes, they're very powerful. We can see details, as I said, that are a million times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. The downside, however, is we have to use very low temperatures to freeze the protein molecules so that they're completely still and they're not moving at all. And the temperatures we use are roughly equivalent to liquid nitrogen. So that's roughly 200 degrees Celsius below zero, extremely cold. So we freeze, we snap freeze everything so that it stands completely still. And then we take many snapshots by using our electron microscope and we can reconstruct how these protein molecules look like so we know exactly where all the nooks and crannies are on the surfaces of these protein molecules, which is really important in the development of drug molecules so that these drug molecules can interact physically with those uh, protein molecules. But the fact that we freeze these molecules, these protein molecules, also means that we can't really watch them move anymore. So that's where the light microscopy comes in, where we visualize, as I said earlier, how DNA molecules are copied by protein molecules. So we can see them in action in real time, but not with the super high level of detail that the electron microscopes give us. So we really need to combine the two approaches, 
the electron microscopy for the high level of detail, but no motion, and the light microscopy for the motion and dynamics, but not with a super high level of detail. We have to combine those approaches to build a full picture of what these protein molecules are doing. So it's all about what we call integrative sciences, combining all these different approaches. Well, it is so many approaches. I mean, you've got physics and engineering in with your biology. There's a there's a lot of cross-disciplinary work going on there. Yeah, absolutely. I love combining biology and chemistry and physics. I'm actually trained as a physicist. At the end of my PhD, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit, but I didn't even know the difference between protein and DNA. And only after my PhD in physics, I went into biology and I discovered how amazing biology is and how fascinating these molecular processes are. So I've personally experienced the strength of integrating different disciplines like physics and biology and chemistry. It's quite powerful. And do you find biologists have any particular feelings about a physicist moving in on their territory? (laughs) There's always a lot of joking around between physicists and biologists and chemists. But I think by and large, everybody recognizes that crossing disciplines and integrating disciplines is is an essential ingredient to keep moving science forward. If a student was watching and thought, what should I study to be able to sort of follow this path, what would you recommend now? Most university undergraduate structures are still fairly focused on individual disciplines, such as physics, chemistry, and biology. My advice there, study what you're interested in. Just have fun, whether that's physics, chemistry, biology, or maths, or engineering, what have you. And keep an open mind when it comes to learning about different disciplines. This is also a great moment for me to put in a plug because at the University of Wollongong, we have set up a, an undergraduate degree called Bio Nanotechnology, where we actually integrated at an undergraduate level physics, chemistry, maths, and biology, especially for those people who, when they do their HSCs, really don't want to commit to one of these disciplines and want to continue at a uni level combining those disciplines. And obviously, we established that degree to recognizing that this is how science works these days. It's really about integrating disciplines. And would there be room for some data science and AI in there somewhere too? Oh, absolutely. That's a critical component. Just to give you an example, the uh, electron microscopy images we produce, we produce terabytes a day, and they all need to be analyzed via with algorithms that are really not doable by the human eyes and the human brain. So we use a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning based approaches to uh, analyze those those images. Uh, Data science is a similar story. The large volumes of data that come out of these research projects, we do require experts to be able to manage those data streams and develop sensible ways of analyzing them. Have fun in studying whatever you're studying. Make sure that the fun part is always taking priority over things like, oh, am I, am I sure whether I'll be able to have a job out of this degree or what have you? Study whatever really interests you and that will bring you far. Well, Antoine, thank you very much. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Professor Antoine van Ooyen from the University of Wollongong. 
and the director of Molecular Horizons, talking about what he's learned from watching DNA replicate with the special microscopes he's designed and built. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3 MVR in the Mallee districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords, so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.